Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this time that we can spend looking into your word together. It is wonderful that you have given us yet another day that you have made, and we can rejoice and be glad in it by looking into your word together as your people gathered here in fellowship with one another, sitting in submission under your word. Lord, may that be the case today. May none of us in this room exalt ourselves over the word, but may we all be under the word here this morning. May you make it clear to us what you have said, and may it be helpful for us as we seek to serve you, the living, everlasting God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the subject of philosophy can either make some people very interested But for most of us, I think it scares us to think of the subject of philosophy and what uh, it entails to study philosophy. It is something that uh, gets a little bit of fear in us. And it's because, I think, we fear things that are hard and difficult. And philosophy is concerned with answering the big questions of life, those questions that are difficult and hard, which don't have ready answers to them, such as, who are you? How do you know you are really there? That we aren't all in the matrix. We aren't all Kenu Reeves. And there's some big super computer looking after us all. How do you know you actually exist? It's a very good question. Have you considered that when you're watching the matrix? Or did you just think it was just an interesting film? It wasn't dealing with anything philosophical. Are you in the matrix? What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of being here? What is right and wrong? What is something that is right to do? What is something that is wrong? What is beauty? What makes one painting beautiful and another one a piece of rubbish? What is aesthetically pleasing? Now all the husbands in the room say, of course, the answer's easy, it's my wife. That's what beauty is, that's that's what defines beauty. We don't need a philosopher to tell us that. But philosophy is concerned with those big questions that are difficult. And children ask them often, but as they get older and they realise there are no answers, we start to suppress them and we start to not ask them anymore because we know they're too hard, they're too difficult to answer. Well, this morning we're going to take a lesson in philosophy and we're going to look at two questions in particular and we're going to look at not just the questions... But we're going to do something that philosophers often don't do in that we actually find the answers to those questions. They often say, well, we can't quite say what it is, but it's something like this. Well, here this morning we have the answers to the big questions, to two of the very big questions. And it's not because I'm so clever, I'm such a wonderful philosopher, that we have the answers. No, we have the answers to these two big questions because... God tells us the answers to those two big questions. God tells us the answers to all the big questions of the Bible, uh, of, of life, and that philosophy asks. But here we're going to look at just two. And what are those questions? Who are you? And what is your purpose? What is the meaning of your life? What is it all about? What is the purpose of your life? So first question, who are you? Who are you? As Christians, who are you? Peter gives us four answers as to who we are. And they're in verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 9, four answers as to who you are. First one, verse 9, 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1201 of the Black Church Bibles. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people. First answer is you are a chosen people. That's who you are. Your family defines your identity in a lot of ways. Who are you? Well, you've got a first name, but you've also usually got a surname. And that helps define who you are. And this word people here in verse 9, it's a word that's been translated from the Greek and the Greek word has more to do with ancestry, race, relations, family. And we are here told who our family is and how we get into that family. How do you get into a family usually? Well, you're usually born into a family. That's the common idea that we have as to how we join a particular uh, family. That's how we get the surname that we have. But there's other ways of getting into a family. What's the other way? Adoption. You can take someone's surname through adoption, through being legally adopted. And the other way, of course, is when you're married. You marry into a family. And how do you get in by marriage or adoption? Well, there's a choice that's involved. Someone chooses to marry you, and so you become a part of that family. Or someone chooses to adopt you, and so you become a part of that family. And so we as Christians ask, well, who's our family? Well, you're part of a family of people who are chosen to be a part of that family. He says, you are a chosen people. You are God's people not through being born into it. Just because your parents are Christians or your grandparents are Christians doesn't make you a Christian. The only way you get to be part of the family of God is by God choosing you to be it. And that's where we get these ideas of adoption and the bride of Christ being his church is a choice from God to include you into the family. And so when we ask the question, who are you? We think, well, who am I related to? Well, you're related to people who are chosen to belong to God's family. That's who you are. That's the first part of our answer as to who who we are. What's the second part? Well, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Part of what makes us who we are is our title. If we are a mister or a missus, that tells us quite a lot already, a master or a miss. Or if you say you're not a miss, you're a miss, that tells us something about you and who you are and how you feel about titles. But if you are king or queen or prince or princess or even titles like doctor, professor, pastor, it tells you quite a lot about the person as soon as you hear a title put in front of their name. And so we ask us ourselves, when we look at us as Christians, what is our title? What are we? We are a royal priesthood. We are priests. That's part of our title as to who we are. I am priest Joel and you are priest whoever you are. And a few weeks ago we looked at what it means to be a priest uh, when Peter explored this idea earlier. And to be a priest means that you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. In all that you do, you offer sacrifices as priests to God that are pleasing in his eyes. But here we have a new concept. We explored the idea of priest, but what's this new idea? 
We are royal priests. What does it mean to be royal? A royal priest? Well, the commentators there's basically settle on two views here. One is that we serve royalty. We are priests who serve a king. We are not priests who serve a common person. We are priests who serve a king. So we are royal priests, and that's true. We serve God, who is king. And we are his priests, so we are royalty. We are royal priests. But the other idea is that we are royalty serving as priests. We are kings and queens serving as priests as well. We've got a sort of a dual role. We've got multiple titles in front of our name, like you could have the, the Reverend Dr. Joel Radford, or you could have um, uh, you could be Professor plus Doctor. You could put many titles in front of your name. Well, we've got two here. We've got royal priesthood. And so we have us as people, as Christians, have to remember we're royalty. We're kings and queens in the kingdom of God. And so that's, our, that's part of who we are. Now, that's quite an unusual thing to think that we are kings and queens as well as priests. In the Old Testament, it was not something that was united together, these two offices. If a king did a priest job, he got in major trouble. We see that with, the, with King Saul. He can't simply wait for Samuel to show up and offer the sacrifice in the Old Testament. He's, he's got a battle that he's going for, and the men are there, and he's uh, needing a sacrifice to be offered before they go, and the men start to scatter. And so what does Saul do? He goes, can't wait for Samuel any longer. I'll offer the sacrifice. It'll be okay. God will accept it. But no, Samuel then shows up and says, what's, what's going on here? And King Saul gets in major trouble for it. The kingdom is taken away from him as a result of him offering a sacrifice that he should not have. But here in the New Testament, Peter tells us that we as Christians are very privileged. Part of who we are is we are royal priests. The office of king and priest is united in the Christian life. And we see that with Jesus. He is both king and priest because he is of the order of Melchizedek, who in the Old Testament, in Genesis, this guy shows up, Melchizedek, who we don't really hear much about after that. And what is he? He is both priest and king. He offers a sacrifice. He, he blesses, uh, blesses Abraham as a priest, but he's also king of a city. And Jesus is part of that, uh, uh, he's, he's part of that priesthood. He's part of the priesthood of Melchizedek, both king and priest. And we are part of that order of Melchizedek as well, part of that priesthood, in that we are kings and priests. That's part of your identity. What else, mate, and what else is there about us, who you are? You are a holy nation is the third thing there. Part of your identity is your nation. People say, oh, they find out your name and they say, oh, so where are you from? Is one of the next few questions. They might say, what do you do? You say priest and king, and then you say, well, where are you from? And here we are told we are part of a holy nation. What does it mean to be a nation? Well, a nation is usually people who are sometimes linked by race, uh, but they can just be united under a common leaders, a system of government, and particular traditions, particular cultures bind them together and make them a nation. And so the question is, what makes us a nation as Christians? What are we united for? 
And the answer is given to us by the adjective there. Holy nation. What makes our nation different from the other nations? It is united for holiness. Many nations unite for unholiness. They unite for war against peaceful people that are nearby so they can take advantage of them and steal their possessions. But we as Christians, part of our identity is that we are part of a nation of holiness. We are holy because of what Jesus has done. Our unrighteous acts have been wiped away and we are righteous. And we are progressively getting holier and holier as well. So in God's eyes, we are seen to be holy because of Jesus. That's our positional, our definitive sanctification. But then we also have progressive sanctification. We're getting holier. And so we as Christians, it should be quite clear what, part, what nation we're a part of because of the way we live. People should say, oh, you, the way you live, I wonder whether you're a Christian. I wonder whether you're part of the nation of Christians. And sometimes that happens. You see a person, you get to know them a bit, and you haven't quite found out that they're a Christian, but the way they act, the way they speak, you go, I actually wonder whether that person is a Christian, whether they're part of that nation. Just like you would wonder, is so-and-so, the accent there, are they Irish or are they Scottish? And you kind of try and work it out. Just like you do that, Christians should be the same. People should start to wonder. What nation are they united with? Are they united for holiness by the way they live or are they united for unholiness? So who are you? You're part of a nation of holiness. What's the fourth thing, the last thing about who you are? God tells you, you are a people belonging to God. Part of your identity is who you belong to. So if you see a kid on the street and he's misbehaving, you say... What's your name? And where's your father? You want to know who the kid belongs to. And that's a big part of the child's identity. And it's the same with us even as adults. Who your father was can say a lot about you. If your father is Barack Obama, that says quite a lot. You belong to Barack Obama. If your father is Charles Spurgeon, then you go, oh, you know, that's, that's quite significant as well. If your father is Adolf Hitler, well, then that says a lot about you as well. Who you belong to says an awful lot about you. Who do you belong to as a Christian? A people belonging to God. You're God's possession. That's another way you could translate that, that you're a private possession of God. No one else owns you. You're not a shared possession like a car, you know, you have an agreement where you're all going to share a car and you all pay a certain amount a month and, you know, someone has it this month and someone has it the next month. No, you are a private possession belonging to God. That is part of your identity. You belong to him. And that makes you very special. Do you realise what it means to belong to God? As soon as something is owned by particular people, it becomes of great value. Think of what's in museums. You get some very ordinary stuff in there. Some bits of paper with stuff written on it, a walking stick, bits of furniture, very ordinary things. But what makes them significant, what puts them behind glass so that people can gaze at them is who they belong to at some point. As soon as the President of America signs something with a particular pen, that pen becomes very valuable and very significant and a very precious possession. 
does it mean that you are possessed by God, the king of the universe, the God who made everything? Every Christian should be in a museum. Their blood should be bottled because of who they belong to. Can you believe that? That so many people in this room right here and now belong to God. They're his possession. They're more than just a pen. They're a person belonging to God. That is such a privilege. That's such a big part of your identity, of who you are. When you're asked the question, who am I? I'm a person that belongs to God. Not any God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. There's no one higher than him. You belong to the top person in the universe. Imagine that. That's who you are. All right, that's who you are. What's the other philosophical question that we're asking this morning? What's your purpose? What's your purpose in this world? That's who you are, but what, what, do you, what are you here for? Well, he tells us in verse 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Your purpose is to declare something. And the word there, declare, is a very unusual word. It only occurs once in the entire Greek New Testament. And it can also be translated advertise, publish, uh, tell out, make widely known. And so we're basically, our purpose as Christians is marketing. We're advertisers. We're publishers. Of what? Of God's praises. Now, the translation there of God's praises isn't probably the best of translations. Um, the word could also mean excellencies, uh, qualities about God that set him apart from others, or even translated almost literally as heroic deeds, the actions of God, not just his attributes, but his actions, what he has done. Those are the things that we're supposed to be advertising. And what are those things that God has done that sets him apart from everybody else, that makes him excellent, excel, makes him excel from everybody else? Well, what does it say in the text? You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What is the most wonderful, significant action of God that he has done that you're supposed to advertise? that he's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He called you out of the darkness of sin and has brought you into his wonderful light. You no longer are darkened by sin and enslaved to sin. Instead, you are free and bathing in his light. His righteousness is being put up to your account because of what Jesus did at the Christ. You are no longer filled with darkness. You are filled with light. And that is what you're meant to be telling other people. Because... Once you were not his people, verse 10, but now you are the people of God. It's not like you've always been in his light. It's not like you've always been his people. You once were not. Do you remember that? Do you remember that there was a time when you weren't a Christian and you were in darkness and you were not God's possession? And what's the last bit? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, there was a point where you had not received mercy from God and you were facing his wrath. But now you have received mercy. Those are the heroic actions of God. He brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
He made you his people. He showed mercy to you. That's what you're supposed to be telling others, that God is so excellent because of what he has done for you. So how do you fulfill that purpose? Your purpose is marketing. So what are some marketing strategies? You may not have realised that you were in marketing all this time. You thought you were doing a different profession. But here you're told, this is who you are and this is your purpose. You're a marketer. You're meant to advertise God. How do you do that? Well, the first obvious way is by your speech, by the way that you speak. You can tell others about Jesus and what God has done in calling you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, not all of us are able to tell others about Jesus as well as the next person, but I think we're all called to do so. We're all supposed to give an answer to the hope that we have in Jesus. We're all supposed to advertise people. It's not like Peter here narrows it down to just a few people. He says, but you are a chosen people, some of you, and uh, no, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that some of you may declare the praises of him who called you. No, it says that you may declare, all of you are supposed to declare. Now, that can be intimidating. And some of us feel, oh, I'm not able to declare it as well as the next person, so I'll just keep quiet. But no, if every Christian speaks of the praises of God, speaks of his excellencies, then that says something very powerful about God. If you have some product and only the people who talk about it are the leaders of whoever made it, and they never let the common people talk about it, and they shut them up, they never let them have a voice. If anyone writes anything on their website that's detrimental to that, their product, it seems like something's being hidden here. Something's a bit fishy about this product that's being advertised here because only the people who have some sort of financial gain from it are the people who speak about it as though it's good. But if everybody speaks about it as good, despite their background, that says something very powerful. If every Christian speaks about God and how wonderful he is, despite how clever they are, how much money they have, how much social status they have. If it's only kings and queens who talk about God as being excellent and the common people never speak about God as being excellent, that says something quite powerful. If everybody, no matter what their background is, is a Christian and says God is truly excellent, that says a very powerful message to those who are not Christians. It says that God is for every single person on the planet, not just for the elites, not for just those people who are intelligent. So that means that you, even though you feel like you can't share the gospel with others, when you do, that's part of a big message that's being sent out. When you do, it's uniting with those who might be able to explain it a little more clearly, but it's uniting with them and saying, God is good. God does wonderful things and the greatest thing is that he calls people out of darkness into light. So one of your best marketing strategies is to share the gospel with others. And you may find that intimidating, but you can all be trained in it. I'm happy to go through with any of you 
how you can present the gospel very clearly, very succinctly to others. There's some very good material out there. I'm happy even to do a class if there's a few of you, and we'll sit down on a Sunday afternoon, and we'll go through what the gospel is and how you can share it. Uh, I'm more than willing to do that, and all of us uh, can be trained to share the gospel very easily if we make the effort to do so. We should not be scared to share the gospel with others. What's the other way that we can market God? Well, one of your biggest marketing strategies is the way that you live. Your life is a marketing strategy. The best advertisers are those who practice what they preach. And the worst advertisers are those who do not practice what they preach. And so you always wonder when you see these ads on the television about some celebrity endorsing some particular product, you think, how much is it because they actually use that particular shampoo, that, that lovely actress? Does she use that shampoo or is she just after the money? And you'd be interested to know whether in her shower she's got it there and she uses it every day. Or that, that sportsman that endorses that cereal, does he really have it in his kitchen cupboard, in his pantry there? And does he eat it every day? Does he practice what he preaches on the television set? Because if he doesn't, then he's a hypocrite and his message is completely undermined because he's just saying it for financial reward. And it's the same with Christians. If you're saying that you're in wonderful light, that you are a holy nation because of what God has done, and then you live a life of complete unholiness, you're horrid to everyone, you're nasty to those that are closest to you, and then you say, but let me tell you about Jesus and what he has done in my life, they're not going to listen to you. You've completely undermined everything you could say by the way that you live. And so a life of holiness supports when you share the gospel. By practicing what you preach, it supports that. And a life of unholiness does the opposite. It deteriorates what you say. And so you have to remember that. If you want to advertise God well, start living a life of holiness. Start living up to what you claim. So that when you do speak, people are ready to listen. So if you are a Christian, do you live up to your purpose that is said to be your purpose here? Do you declare the excellencies of God in your life? God has done so much for you. You are now his possession. He's taken you out of darkness into life. Isn't that something so exciting you can't keep it in that you want to tell as many people as possible what has happened to you? Do you advertise God with your speech? Do you speak about the gospel to others? When was the last time that you spoke to someone about Jesus, about what he did at the cross, what it means to be a Christian? When was the last time that you spoke to a non-Christian family member or friend about Jesus. Do you advertise God with your speech? And then with your life, do you remember that what you do affects how you advertise God, how you market God? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, then who are you? What is your purpose? 
Let me tell you with all sincerity and as lovingly as I can that if you're not a Christian, then you're the opposite of everything that's said here about Christians. You don't belong to God. You haven't been shown mercy. You are not part of a holy nation. And your purpose? It's to not advertise God, but to ruin God. To try and damage his reputation as much as you can by saying that Jesus isn't God, Jesus isn't the one, he isn't the saviour. And so you're counteracting everything that God has done. You're advertising, but for the other camp. You can't say that you're just passive. You're either with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, you're sending a powerful message each day by saying, I'm not a Christian, that God isn't someone to be taken seriously at all. And I want to ask you, if that's you, are you considering the consequences of what you're doing? That you're rebelling against the King of Kings, the God who made everything? Is that something you really want to do? Do you think he's going to let you get away with that? That you're going to go out there and badmouth him and he's going to let you do that for eternity? Consider what you are doing. Repent and believe and become a Christian today. Let me tell you once more about the excellencies of God. He sent Jesus Christ into this world to die as a man at the cross as a substitution for your sins so that you do not have to pay with eternal punishment in hell, but you can go free. You can have the mercy of God if you believe in him today. Do it now. And then start advertising how wonderful God is, that he has brought you into his light. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you answer the tough questions of life, that you have told us who we are and what is our purpose. Lord, we pray that you may help us to declare your praises, how wonderful you have been, how gracious and merciful, by calling us out of darkness into your wonderful light. May this be a fire within our bones that we just want to proclaim to others and we cannot bear to keep it in. Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who does not know you. May they realise that they, by their rejection of you, are bad-mouthing you and advertising that you are not worthy of time. Lord, we pray that they may realise what they're doing. They may fear you and repent and believe right now. Be sorry for their sins and trust in Jesus' death for their own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.